Once again, we welcome you all to the Memorial Church this morning, particularly our special guests. We're so glad once again, as we do every year, to have the women and men of Harvard basketball here to kick off their season with us. It's such a privilege and we consider it a joy that Coach Delaney Smith and Coach Amica and their staffs bring these wonderful men and women that represent the Harvard community so well. Uh, we come to get ready for tip-off by lifting them up in prayer. And so it's a treat and a privilege and a joy to have you here. Also, to all of the parents, class of 2020, 2022, all of the parents of our first-year students who are here for first-year parents weekend, we welcome you. I see some of you here. We are so glad that you're here with your first-year student in worship this morning. And let me just say I can testify on their behalf that your son and your daughter has been here every single Sunday. So it's good to have you worshiping with them this morning. Brother Chris and Sister Sydney already read the lessons for us. They flow together, and I just wanted to emphasize Mark chapter 12, verse 33. And to love God with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love then one's neighbor as oneself. This, Jesus tells his friendly interlocutor, the scribe, is much more important than all of the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Love the God, love God with all of your being, then love your neighbor as yourself. This is more important than all of the other rituals. This is the greatest commandment. What does love look like? What does love look like? My friends, in November 1845, Abolitionist Frederick Douglass embarked on a lecture tour in Ireland. Douglass was championing the cause of anti-slavery in Europe. He was promoting his recently released autobiography, A Narrative Life, and Douglass was literally on the run as a fugitive slave from a Maryland plantation. Douglas arrived in Ireland just in time to witness the onslaught of the great potato blight. In the 1840s, two-thirds of Ireland's population depended on the potato crop for their subsistence. Beginning in 1845, a fungus overtook the potato. Famine emerged. Within a few years, Millions of Irish died from hunger and disease. Mass immigration ensued, and another two million Irish would emigrate to the United States and Canada. And then to add insult to injury, the policies of the British intentionally exacerbated rather than ameliorated Irish suffering. 
in Ireland, the injustice of the world collided for Douglas. He smelled the stench of religious hypocrisy from both sides of the Atlantic. The tragedy of human depravity demonstrated an enduring truth for Douglas. Man's mistreatment of a man knows no race. It knows no religion and it knows no particular region of the globe. Leaders in England chalked up the potato famine to God's providence. They mitigated the distribution of food to the poor in the name of quote-unquote free markets. Officials incentivized the eviction of peasant farmers. They quickly then consolidated the land for commercial use. And local newspapers in England conspired with politicians and Protestant clergy. They peddled pernicious anti-Irish prejudice throughout both Europe and North America. The Times of London described migrants fleeing certain death as immoral agents of cultural infestation. Anglican clergyman Charles Kingsley described the Irish as white chimpanzees who are only different from the Negro by the color of their skin. And this level, this level of anti-immigration sentiment festered throughout the rest of the 19th century into the 20th century, speaking to a political rally full of Ku Klux Klan members in 1925. Then governor of the state of Georgia, Clifford Wallace, declared, I will build a wall of steel, a wall as high as heaven against the admission of a single one of those Europeans who never thought the thoughts or spoke the language of democracy in their lives. Though Frederick Douglass, Douglass didn't like to equate the condition of slavery in America with the potato famine in Ireland, he did point out the hypocrisy of the Protestant elite on both continents. Too many self-styled philanthropists, he wrote in 1846, care no more about the Irishman than they care about the slave. It seems that British officials preferred death and eviction over the auction block for these quote-unquote white chimpanzees. And the British media underscored an important point about a sinful humanity. Those who can make us believe absurdities can make us commit atrocities. But when it comes, my brothers and sisters, when it comes to the history of mass suffering in our world, when it comes to the dark periods of slavery, apartheid, genocide, the narrative appears to be a consistent one. The narrative is one of a minority who commit atrocities while the majority remain willfully ignorant or indifferent. Injustice seems to favor willful ignorance over constructive engagement, social apathy over social involvement, for it's not that human beings are inherently wicked. But as Albert Einstein once put it, 
The world is such a dangerous place, not because of those who commit evil, but because of those who look and who do nothing for what we allow, we encourage. This is why, this is why when asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus appeals to the ethical teachings of the Jewish tradition. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. Jesus' words are simple, yet they're far from simplistic. They're easy to repeat, but they're much harder to practice. Love God, then love God's creation. That is, yourself and your neighbor. Easy to repeat, but hard to practice. But wait, wait, Jesus. Wait, Jesus, I attend church every Sunday and I pray every night. Oh, that's all well and good, I can hear Jesus saying. But love the Lord with your whole being means that you then direct that love toward the most vulnerable around you. Uh, sure, okay, Jesus. But you know, I contribute financially to the church. I attend coffee hour each week. I even know the opening hymn by heart. That's great, Jesus might reply, but how can we say that we love a God that we've never seen and ignore the adversity, affliction, and anguish of those who inhabit this planet with us? Jesus, I read scripture every day. I listen only to gospel music and anthems at work. I even get down on my knees and pray multiple times per day and I, Hear the voice of Jesus saying, lips that sing and pray cannot replace hands that serve and heal. Love God. Love God's creation. This is more important than all of your burnt offerings and ritual sacrifices. Jesus is warning us we can't let our demonstrations of faith become an excuse for our inactivity. We can't let our piety become an escape from our moral obligations. We can't let our religion become a way to justify our failure to intervene on behalf of the most vulnerable. You and I cannot afford to become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Might this be the reason that so many young people feel an aversion toward the church? Might this be the reason that so many agree that religion is simply an art Marxist opiate of the masses? We come to church, we get high off the contact smoke of prayer and praise while the world is the one left with the hangover. We gather and we debate over doctrine. We argue over orthodoxy while paying little attention to the pains, problems, perils, perplexities that engulf our society, engulf our world. We wax eloquently about sin. We profess Jesus will save you. Yet we ignore Jesus' most explicit command. Take care of one another. 
you say you love God, then there is no longer I, but it's you and me. There's no them or they, but it's us and we. That's what love looks like. Not a bland unity, but concern for one another. Not homogeneity, but shared humanity. It's not being about being selfless, but it's about thinking about oneself less. Jesus is teaching us something about faith that many of us in this sanctuary have learned in other arenas. Many of us have learned that life is a team sport. The more we learn to give ourselves to a cause greater than ourselves, the more we learn to improve the lot of those around us, the more likely we will experience lives of joy and purpose. Life in God's kingdom is not a spectator sport, nor is it about individual accomplishment. Our success is always and already bound up with the success of others. Last month, some of us witnessed basketball player LeBron James teach this to his young Laker teammates. Playing on the road against the Portland Trail Blazers when his teammate Kyle Kuzma hit the deck. We witnessed LeBron walk over to him and he pulled him up and he called all of his teammates together and he told them this. He said, anytime you hit the floor, you stay down for your brother will come and will pick you up. Maybe this is what Jesus is trying to teach us this morning. This is what love looks like. When life knocks us down, we can trust that others will be there to pick us up, just as when we see others down. It's our responsibility to stretch out an ethical hand of uplift. This is what love looks like. You and I, we will either rise up and we will win together as brothers and sisters or we will lay down and stay down and lose like fools.